Well, before we get into the word this morning, I just want to say a quick prayer. So, Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. I thank you for speaking to me, and I, I just ask now that you would speak through me, Lord, and that you would move me out of the way, and this word would be an encouragement. It would be edification for the church. It would be correction for people that need it, Lord. It would be um, just instruction in righteousness. Whatever it, ne- it needs to be for people here this morning, that it would be that. And you would use me, and your Holy Spirit would flow through this word this morning and change lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you guys are anything like me, you get to passages you've read several times or stories you know, and you kind of gloss over them. You know, I've gotten into this habit this year, and I I almost don't want to admit it, of listening to the Bible instead of reading it. It's just, you know, I can do it on my drive, or I can do it, you know, a little more casually. And, you know, I follow along, but I'm reading the Bible chronologically, and if you, if you know anything about the Old Testament, there's sections of the Old Testament that are like repeats. And when you read those sections chronologically, you're reading them back to back to back. So you'll read a, a chapter in Chronicles, and you'll read the exact same thing that the same day or the next day in Kings. And it's, I had this tendency to be like, oh man, I read that already, so I kind of tone it out, and I'm not listening as good. I'm, oh, I've already got what I need out of that passage. This is literally the exact same words. How could I need this? But all words of the Bible are powerful. And I do that more often than I'd like to admit, and I know I'm not the only one that does that. And there's passages that you've heard many times that you, you tone those out. And today is one of those days where I'm going to bring up a familiar passage. And I, I'm asking you to look at it with fresh eyes. Because we've actually been talking about this passage for the past couple weeks. And that is the parable of the ten virgins. And we have a full house today. It's been a while since we've had a full house. We, you know, this is a, It's been a while since all of us were on the, the same island together and got to come to church together. So this is awesome. So maybe you've missed this, but we're going to read from Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. It says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us, and, and for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell and buy some oil for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived, and the virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came, And said, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, that's a very common parable about the rapture. You know, here you have the virgins representing the church. You have the bridegroom representing Jesus. He's going to come at an hour we don't know to take us into the wedding banquet. He's going to come take us out of this world into his promised land. He's going to come... And relieve us from the burdens of this world. Right? That's, that's, that's the gist of the story. So, okay, yeah, we, we get the story. And, and to be honest, the past couple weeks, Pastor Jay's read that story. I've 
I've kind of toned it out. I've, I know the story. I know the meaning. I know the purpose. I know the, the, the lesson in the parable. But I kept getting this prompt and look at it with fresh eyes. And I don't know how your fresh eyes work, but the way I look at things with fresh eyes is I read it from a different translation or I read it from a different uh, version or just a different way to where I, I see things that I didn't see before. Because when you read something in the same way over and over, you almost have it memorized and, you're, and, you, and you gloss over it. So instead of looking at a different version, I actually took this passage and I wrote it in more of a modern grammar. Now I'm not saying you can take passages from the Bible and rearrange them and make them mean what you want them to mean. But I think what I did was it gave me the ability to see the lesson here from a new light. It gave me the ability to see a more heavy lesson in this parable. So I'm going to read this same exact passage in a slightly different way. I want to see if you can... If you can pick up on the difference. It says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom was a long time coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones who took their lamps but did not take any oil with them said to the wise ones who took oil in jars along with their lamps, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Now, the rest of it's exactly the same. I didn't do anything different. But did you notice the difference there? In the first version, we're given a kind of a peek into the story. We're told right off the bat that five of these ten virgins were foolish and five of them were wise. We're told of a difference. But in the second version, I just put that statement slightly further down the story. And the difference it makes is pretty... It, it, it kind of shook me a little bit. Because if you look at the virgins closely, until you find out some are wise and some are foolish, they're exactly the same. There is nothing that identifies the difference. They all had lamps. They all trimmed their wicks. They were all invited to the banquet. They all knew the bridegroom. They all fell asleep, and they were all woken up. Five were allowed in, and five weren't. What made the difference? I mean, if, if this parable really is about Christians being caught out of the world, how could half of them not make the call? I mean, that, that, that gives me chills to think, as a Christian, is there a way that I could miss this call? Is there a way that I could miss the rapture? Is there a way that I could get to the heaven's door and Jesus say, I don't, I truly, I, I don't know you. Is that possible? Is that what I'm reading in this parable? That's, that, that's heavy. And it's, it reminds me of another passage that's, that's also pretty familiar. It's in Matthew, it's also in Matthew chapter 7. Beginning in verse 21. says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. I mean, if I'm, if I'm comparing myself to these guys... I don't remember the last time I drove out any demons. I don't remember the last time I, I was known for performing many miracles. How could, 
they get to that throne room and be told, depart from me, I never knew you. And even go as far as being told, called evildoers. I mean, if, if that's the case, I don't, I don't stand a chance. What is this telling us? What is, it, what is this saying to us? What happened? What, why, how can ten virgins invited to a birthday or a wedding banquet, or many, that's, that's the sobering part of this, these stories. In one situation, you have half of the virgins didn't make it. And the other story, in the other verses, it says many. Not a few, not just one or two, many. How do they miss this? How is this missed? How could they end up there? How could you arrive where you expect to be let in and not be let in? What makes the difference? Could it really be that there will be many people on the day of judgment that say, Lord, we did all this stuff in your name. We lived good lives. We did these things. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Does this mean I could lose my salvation? Now, I guess it would be a good time for a public service announcement, I guess you'd call it. I don't, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I, I, believe, I believe the Bible is true when it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, not you will be saved temporarily, not you are saved until you do this, you will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But I believe there's going to be a lot of people that get to a point one day and they're going to realize they weren't saved. That's the difference. I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but I believe from these passages you can go through your life thinking you're saved and you're not. And that's, if there's ever a time where that's been a sobering thought, now is that time. Because we're not called to know the day or the hour. Like it said, you will not know the day or the hour, but you will know the season. You can know the season, and the season is upon us. And if you want, you, you can go through life, and you can wait till that day to find out what his answer is. Or, if you're like me, you want to know if I can know now. I want to know if I can know now what that answer is going to be when I get there. And the awesome thing about Bible questions is they lead the Bible answers. Because the word is complete. It doesn't leave anything out. Like we, who was it talking about? Oh, uh, Heidi talking about her friend. Oh, don't, don't look at that part over there. Don't, don't look at that section. Don't read that. Read this. No, the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't leave things to chance. It doesn't leave things out. If you, have, if you found a question you have from the Bible, you'll find the answer in the Bible. I mean, it may take some digging. You may have to look at some commentaries or something. But Bible questions lead to Bible answers. God's not trying to hide things from us. He's not trying to leave things out to leave us, leave us guessing. And the short answer to it is, how, how can I know now what I will hear when I stand before my Savior? How can I know now if I will be accepted or if I'll be rejected? How can I know with surety now that I have eternity in heaven? The short answer is, you will know them by their fruits. Right? We all know that. You will know them by their fruits. Beware of false prophets who, who come as wolves dressed, dressed in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruits. You know, no bad tree produces good fruit. No good tree produces bad fruits. 
you are known by your fruits. That's the simple, plain, short answer, right? But the long version is, let's take a look. Let's, let's find out in the Bible how we can know with surety that we won't be those five foolish virgins. How we can know that we won't be found in the many who are turned away. Because that, that is, I can't, that's a scary thought. To think that you could be, we could be found in the many. And in First John, this is a pretty well-known passage, but maybe not as well-known. There's a few passages that give us this answer. First John 3, beginning in verse 7, or wait, this wrong book, sorry. First John 3, 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because, God sees, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does what is right, does not do what is right, is not God's. Is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. How do you know who the children of God are? How do we know if we'll be accepted? How do we know that we are, we have the assurance of eternity in heaven? Is we do what is right. We have a lifestyle that backs up that claim. We have a reflection of that decision in our heart that comes out in our outward living. It doesn't say, I mean, it says, cannot go on sinning, but that doesn't mean we don't mess up. Like we sang this morning, you know, when I fall down, you pick me up. We fall down, we fall short. But it's that progression of having a life change, a progression of having your life transformed from being in His presence, a life being transformed from being his word, a life being transformed from abiding with him. Right? A little more common passage is in James. Same concept. James chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I like that word action. Because there's a, a stigma on the word works. Because of the belief that there's beliefs out there that you can work your way into heaven. You can do things and earn your way into heaven. But action is different. Faith without action. Faith without deeds. Faith without follow through. Is what, what the key is. But someone will say to you, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There are those that believe but have no actions. There are those that believe 
that God is the only God. Even the demons believe what it says. And they shudder at the fact of it. They know God is the one God. But yet, they don't have faith. They don't have salvation. They don't have the assurance that we can have today. It's, there's a saying, I forget who said it. Belief won't get you anything. But without belief, you won't get anything. It's that combination. You know, we have two, we have two sets of people here. We have a group of virgins who had faith but no works. They had faith but no follow through, right? And then we have a group of false disciples who had all the works but no faith. So faith without actions is dead and actions without faith is dead. We've got to have both. It's not one or the other, either or. It's both and. Both faith and actions. Both actions and faith. Lifestyle and faith. Neither one of the different ones, the, life, the actions without faith or the faith without actions worked for either party. They both ended up the same way. Both expecting to be accepted, but then turned away. Left saying, but, 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 but we did this. But, but, but we know you. But, but, but we had an invitation. No, I do not know you. You can know Jesus and him not know you. That's a scary thought. So the answer to the question is, how, how can I be sure of my faith? How can I know that, that when, I, when I realized that I needed a Savior, how can I know that that was real? How can I know? Can we know? Because anyone that's been a Christian for a long time, the devil likes to poke at things. Oh, you wouldn't have done that if you were really saved. You wouldn't have said that if you were really saved. Oh, you, Jesus doesn't love you anymore. How can we stomp those doubts out? Because doubts lead to questions. Questions lead to uncertainty. Uncertainty leads to disbelief. And disbelief leads, leads to distance. Distance from God. How can we know? How can we close that gap? How can we keep that, those doubts out of our minds? Is your salvation evident? You know, there's that old cliche. If you were to stand trial for being a Christian... Would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know, that, that's a... I'm afraid to say that's, that's something that might become a reality in the not-too-distant future where we, people stand trial for being a Christian. The question is, is there enough evidence to convict you? Is your faith evident? Is your faith something people see? Your walk with God should be evident to people. Or do you have to convince people do you do something that someone man, I thought you were a Christian. I thought, I thought you'd be different. No, I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I just messed up. Is your faith evident? I remember there was a teacher in our Bible school that had a t-shirt. And it said, I apologize if I have to tell you that I'm a Christian. You shouldn't have to tell people you're a Christian. They should see it. That's when faith is real. You know, I've shared this quote from John Bevere several times before, and I've and I'll probably share it several more times. It says, Our lifestyle will accuse us or vindicate us. It shows either the proof of our faith or the proof that we simply claimed faith but lived a life that denied the Lord. 
That's how you know. Is your lifestyle different? Has your decision to follow Jesus led to you actually following Jesus? Or was it just a prayer you said one time in a church? Was it a prayer that you thought you had to say? Was it what they call fire insurance? Has your decision to follow Jesus actually led to you following Jesus? That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where things become real. That's where faith becomes more than just lip service. It becomes the ability to know that I know that I know that when that role is caught up yonder, I'll be there. When he comes down to gather his children, I'll be there. It's not saying I live a perfect life. It's not saying that I don't mess up. But I can look back on my life and see the changes he's made. And there's no other explanation than the fact that he is part of my life. Not because of what I've done, but because of who he is. Not because of who I am, but because of what he's done. As much as I'd love to take credit for who I've become over the years, it's not me. As much as I'd like to brag about how good of a man I am, it's not me. How good of a father I feel like I am, it's not me. It's the evidence of my faith in Jesus coming to light. The real key to knowing that you know that you know is abiding. That's our word of the year. To remain in him. To abide in him. Because when you abide in him, there's no room for those doubts to slip in. There's no room for the insecurities. Because when I, when I fall back a little bit and when I step back out of Jesus' presence, there's room for that devil to come in and whisper things in my ear. And because of that room between me and Jesus, there's a little bit of uncertainty in my mind that the devil can convince me of things. And when he convinces me of things, then I have doubts. Then I'm insecure. But when we abide in his presence, when we abide in the vine, we know. The devil has no, he has no chance. Because we know that we know that we know. And we know that we are saved. We know that we have the promise of eternity. We know that the, Jesus loves us more than anything. And we know that his things that he's saying are only lies and deceit. Another familiar passage is in John. Chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, not just the vine, the true vine. And my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away in the and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words in you, you will ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
How do we bear fruit? We abide in the vine. We stay in his presence. We can't do it on our own. I've tried. Many, many in this room, probably everybody in this room has tried to do it on their own, and you can't do it. You have to abide in the vine. And I had kind of a, a real, real world application of this. The property we moved into, for those of you who know, has a beautiful stream on the back of it. But they allowed it to just com be completely overgrown to where you couldn't even see the stream from our house, except for like little pockets through the vines. I mean, these vines were causing these giant trees to sag. I mean, they were just huge vines, big leaves. I mean, it looked like something out of Jurassic Park. So I, I tasked myself with clearing this stuff up. And most of the vines, you know, they got, I don't know what kind of vines they are, but they got, I mean, it's creepy looking. They got these thousands and millions of little teeth that grab onto the tree and they hold on. And most of them I could just pull out. But there was this one giant, the stalk of this vine was about, about that big around. I mean, and it was just overtaking this giant tree. And I could not pull the grip that it had on that tree. So I'm like, man, how am I going to get this down? And I thought, I thought of this passage. You've got you to gotta stay attached to the vine. If you're not, you'll dry up and wither. So I took my axe, and I made a little slit in that vine. Just tiny. I mean, you, you, you could barely even see the separation between the part that attached to the ground and the part that went up the tree. Just a little slit. You know what? That vine held on tight. It, it didn't come right off. It wasn't like a snake that just withered up and fell. It held on tight. It still was a very strong vine. The next day, it still was a very strong vine. A week later, it still was a very strong vine, but you could see some brown on the outside of the edges of the leaf. The next week, it still was a strong vine, but a couple of leaves had fallen off. Finally, after three weeks, I was able to pull that vine's grip on that tree. And I thought, man, how, how easy is it for us to have that little slit of separation between us and God, where we don't even notice it. We do something small, we do something stupid, and there's a slit of separation between us. But we go on our life because we don't, we don't feel it, we don't notice it. We're still a strong vine. We're still doing good. Then a week later, we're a little bit weaker. A week later, we're a little bit weaker. And a week later, the enemy's just waiting to go, wham, and yank you down because you, you've been separated. You weren't abiding. You don't have the fruit. You don't have the strength because you're not abiding. So whatever it is that the enemies came in and slit your abiding, whatever it is the enemies came in and slipped in between you and God, whatever it is that's came in and taken away the joy of the presence of the Lord, no matter how small it feels this morning, trust me, deal with it while it's small. Because this preparation, this being ready for that day is not something you want to put off. You don't want to wait till that day to find out. You don't want to wait till that day if you were genuine in your faith. If you were walking a faith, your faith out in an evident lifestyle. You don't want to wait till that day. I don't want to wait till that day. Today is the day of salvation. You know, if you haven't come to the Lord for salvation, come see one of the pastors after church. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. This is one preparation that you don't want to procrastinate on. Because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We are a vapor in the wind, as we sang this morning. And that is a very... I mean, you ever watch a puff of smoke or a mist of vapor go into a strong breeze? You barely even see it. That's, that's our life compared to eternity. That's our life compared to what's ahead of us. 
a vapor in the wind, to put off a decision or the assurance of salvation for another day, another hour, is foolishness. And if you have anything that's drawn, that came in and just drawn you out of that presence, out of the ability to abide, to where you can just feel your grip on the Lord, just slowly getting weaker and weaker, deal with it today. Because there's there's so much more joy in having that abiding presence than there is in, in wondering does the Lord still love me? Am I sure? Does he, does he really care for me? Could he love me after I did that? To know that you know that you know is the peace that passes all understanding. And you can know that. You can have that peace today. I have just a few thoughts here I wanted to get clear before I close. If we are abiding, we are close to him and will bear fruit. If we are close to him, we know where we stand. If we know where we stand, we will be sure of our salvation. If we are sure of our salvation, we will have no doubts. If we have no doubts, we don't need to question what we'll hear when we stand before him. That's the process we need to follow. Just, and it all starts with our word of the year, abiding. Abide in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much.